But first, we are continuing to talk about a story on the show yesterday. We opened the show speaking with John Claridis. He is a wine merchant. He owns the Marquee Wine Shop. It's in the West End on Davie Street. It's been there for several years. And we were talking to him because when he arrived at work in the morning, he found that the whole front window had been smashed and his new electric bike that was being used for wine delivery had been stolen. And he also talked about the fact that this was not an isolated incident. Just on my block alone, across the street at 1033 Davy, a Bassa Optical, their front window, their, one of their windows is smashed. One of the other merchants, two doors away from me, their window is smashed. And just up the street, uh, a little restaurant called Faux, their window is smashed. Uh, and over the last few months, you know, I get the West End Business Improvement Association emails and there's a preponderance, a plethora of broken windows, and then my favorite pen store on Hastings Street, their window has been broken five times. Let's bring in Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know you responded to the photo that John Claridis put out as well, showing all of the broken glass, saying that we need to stop the decline that we're seeing in many neighbourhoods. How do we do that? Well, I think there's a number of things, and, and you're right, we're seeing this I, throughout the city. It's becoming prevalent in a lot of neighbourhoods. I toured Gastown this week and walked around with the BIA. They're having issues. I know Robson Street has similar issues with broken windows in the last couple of days. You heard from Marquee Wine Cellars there, and it's it's becoming really prevalent and pervasive. But I think what we have missed is this balance between ensuring the livability of our neighbourhoods and making sure that... We are addressing a lot of the vandalism and the crimes and the impact that has on our small business, the impact that that has on livability in the city and people's safety, um, with the bigger call to action to deal with some of the upstream issues that we have around ensuring we have enough support for mental health and addiction services, um, treatment, um, addressing people getting into housing, um, and that work needs to continue. But we can't have an anti-police sentiment and we can't um, have a city that sort of turns a blind eye and says that, you know, this level of vandalism is okay. It's not. Uh, would a bigger police presence have, a, have an impact, do you think? I think one of the biggest issues that we have right now that I'm hearing, um, and I actually just attended the swearing-in this morning, just finished, um, of the latest uh, BBD uh, class, 166, 24 new officers from diverse walks of life who are taking on um, this career in policing, and there was a lot of conversation about how it's a really challenging time to go into policing right now. And I think that that, um, in terms of not um, supporting public safety and questioning police officers, it's, it's having a huge impact um, on how they do their job and how they're received in the community. I still think that the vast majority of the public really supports um, and the need for public safety. Um, but I think that's a really critical issue that we have to deal with. And then, of course, it's ensuring that resources are going um, towards addressing the key issues that we have. Um, and some of the tactics I know that um, have been employed in the past were things like um, beat enforcement officers where you had people on patrol in neighbourhoods. Um, that was done in the downtown east side, for example, years back uh, with a new initiative called BET at the time or the beat enforcement team. Um, and it's about the idea of having the eyes and ears on the street and more of that visible police presence. 
Because like John Claridi was, was saying, this is happening to all of the businesses that, 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 that list that he just ran through. And like you said, too, this isn't only in the West End. I see it when I come to work along Granville Street, on other parts of the downtown as well. So aside, though, from having a stronger police presence, what are the other things that can be done? Because I think all of the business owners agree as well. This has gotten much worse in the past couple of years. Well, I think some of the things we can done, as I said, is is looking at the root causes of of it, and sort of differentiating between what's you know just generally criminal activity and where people are committing crimes uh, because of associated issues with, uh, for example, addictions. Um, if 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 that falls into part of it, or if there are mental health challenges. Um, this week, you know, a lot of council, Vancouver Council, and in fact, all the councils across the province are heading into the UBCM conference, which is the UBC um, uh, municipalities. Uh, all across British Columbia. And so one of the things that we're going to be doing is advocating really strongly for those gaps in terms of addictions and treatment services. Um, I think one thing that's really tangible is as we're putting new housing units in and more housing for folks, it's not just housing, it's supportive housing. And that really means on-site mental health and other supports to assist people that are having challenges and issues. And I think that's where we are missing right now. What else? And I realize that that those are those are options and those are things that would make a difference. But at the same time, we're seeing thieves that are getting so brazen. In this case, the, this breaking of the window and theft took place while there was a security camera. It was clear that the alarm would go off, that people would be alerted. But like John Claridi said, it only took about 20 seconds. We're seeing other stores where people are going into grocery stores or other stores shoplifting, just taking whatever they want. And if the staff do anything, the staff put themselves at risk. With with seeing that level of brazen uh, thieves being so brazen, clearly there's a message out there that there are no consequences. I think that's exactly it. And I think, you know, that setting the tone, I think, you know, comes right from the top in terms of, of mayor and council and throughout the city um, to indicate that there are consequences and that this isn't something that we turn a blind eye to. Um, it's not getting better by sort of people saying, you know, there are significant social issues here. There are, um, absolutely, um, and they do need to be addressed. But in the meantime, we have a responsibility um, to residents that want to feel safe in their neighbourhoods and to those businesses um, to set that tone and have that level of support. And I, I think that there is right now a sentiment out there that um, anything goes is there also a concern that, uh, and I got a few calls on this yesterday, people saying as people are starting to travel again, whether it's just within BC or within Canada, people are welcoming their family members back, welcoming tourists, and taking people around Vancouver is much different than it was a few years ago. And people were calling the buzz line yesterday, calling the show, saying we were quite horrified by what we saw in some of the neighborhoods. So does it show a lack of pride in the city, a lack of any kind of real initiative to change this? I think it, I think it does show, um, it's a huge concern. I mean, my background is actually in tourism. I, for years, was the director of marketing at Tourism Vancouver, and that's what we did, was encourage people to come and, and visit our city and, um, you know, really enjoy kind of how spectacularly beautiful Vancouver is. And, and we were always known as sort of this beautiful, clean, green um, city by the ocean, um, and it was fantastic to visit. And safety is a huge factor uh, for tourists and visitors when they're choosing a destination on and where to go. And so if you lose that, that can have long-term detrimental impacts. Um, absolutely. 
on your visitor economy. And we've seen, you know, for example, with COVID, how devastated they've been um, when you don't have those visitors in town. You see it in Gastown and others that, you know, really relied upon having those visitors here. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely tied together. Uh, there are other cities that have dealt with crime issues by having a system where at night shop owners basically roll down what is something like a garage door, a, a large metal door, covers the glass and protects their businesses. And it seems like something like that is done when the crime is so rampant that there are no other options. Are you concerned that Vancouver is going down that path? I'm absolutely concerned we're going down that path. And yeah, that's a reaction to dealing with an extreme situation. Um, but we want to deal with the root cause of the problem and you know, not tolerate broken windows. Um, and it does show that if you have constant vandalism, graffiti and broken windows, the city isn't loved and you see other more serious types of crime or see more, um, more assaults and other things that are happening in the city. So I am concerned we're going that way. And um, I'd rather see us try to, you know, really sort of call this out, um, address it, come together, work collaboratively between the city and the BPD and the social services, um, as opposed to getting to the point where we have to have a city that we lock down. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Councillor Kirby Young, thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. Well, we know things are going to look a little different if you are heading to any number of places that are on that list of requiring a vaccine certificate, requiring that anybody coming inside, whether it's a ticketed event, an indoor fitness facility, a restaurant, a pub, a casino, nightclub, movie theater, those are just some of the places. So we know things are going to look a little different to come the 13th. So some restaurants have already decided they're going to hire more staff. And joining me now to talk a little bit more about that is Imad Yakub, owner of the Global Restaurant Group. Thanks so much for coming back on the program. Thank you so much for having me. What have you done then to prepare for this coming in on the 13th? Well, we understand that it's going to be quite a bit of frustration for some people that uh, they don't believe of the new system that the government have dictated on all of us. Uh, my biggest problem is, is the people on our doors are young, our staff are young, and we want to make sure that they don't find themselves in a situation that is very uncomfortable to them. So one of the things we did is, is we hired uh, a company that's going to have like almost like, let's say, uh, we could call them a front door host, that just to meet the people on the door to greet them and to just make sure that the people work in correct order so we don't have any situation with misunderstanding and and things get out of hand because uh, I understand where is the frustration coming out there from. But in the meantime, it is we have to look after our staff. That's the number one uh, priority for me right now is the safety and the security of, of our staff. And that makes sense. You say front door host. It sounds almost, though, like a security guard. Like a doorman. How's that? Like a doorman. We don't want to call them securities because it's not... We're not telling people that over, we, we, we could call them a, just like a front door doorman that could just deal with every person coming in. Just ask them, please pull up your uh, your uh, your uh, vaccination cards and just show to us on your way in. It will make everything easier to come in through the restaurants, especially when the hostess have to deal with the phones are ringing and the reservations. And, Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So will the, the person then, the, the front door host or the, the doorman at the, the front, will that person then be in charge of asking customers for the certificate or they're kind of just yes. overseeing it in there in case in case there's yes. a customer who doesn't like it? Yes. So it's making sure that they're asking people first of all if people show us the certificate and then let them pass through. I mean, and it's so many different ways to have it. It's just uh, you could just 
print it uh, with an ID. You could have it on your phone, digital. I mean, it's not uh, so far. The, the rules are coming in are quite loose, so it's not made as a certain way. It fits all. So we, we're going to try to be as comfortable, uh, as uh, sensitive and comfortable with the people coming through the door, just to get, to just get the role. Uh, the ball rolling uh, to get them in Southern as fast as possible. How much is it going to cost you to hire these extra people to be at the front doors? Well, it's, it's costly. I mean, you're thinking of uh, all our downtown locations, time, uh, the hours uh, from uh, from 4 o'clock at night or before that until we almost close. So we, it's, the numbers, the I mean, the numbers is around $30,000 we're looking at right now. But the, the numbers is not as important Again, as you know, our staff, I mean, we're looking at it. Yes, it's another cost that the, the, uh, the BC government just throw on us. Because uh, all these new systems, this has to be like we need to get readers to read it uh, uh, for the, uh, if you have it on a digital. We don't know how far this thing's going to go. But uh, overall, yeah, it's costly. I mean, it's another cost to just add it on a restaurant business so just so we'll be able to survive and open the door yeah. and, you know, pay our bills. And, and sorry, you say? Did you say thirty thousand a month? A thirty thousand yeah. dollars a month additional cost. Yeah. yeah. Huh. That's a, it. Does seem for for an industry, one of the industries that that have that has been suffering, that does seem like a, a pretty big additional cost. Yeah. Well, I mean, we we have no choice. I mean, what can we do? I mean, it's it, it, it's. I mean, we hope uh, that this is not going to be um we hope it's not going to be maybe we could do it for a week or two weeks so when when people get used to the systems and then we go back to our normal situation just walking in with your reservation notes and just walking in we're hoping that'll be a very fast but we're just budgeting right now for the first month to see how things are going to go and um i mean when we were taking temperatures to people and with all the restrictions on masks we did not see that Many uh, through the restaurants, most of the people respected the laws and followed through with the laws. You know, one out of the blue moon. So we're hoping that it'll be the same. Uh, are you concerned that customers might have questions about whether or not staff members are vaccinated? Well, the laws right now is saying is it's just uh, patron. We can we cannot tell, we cannot ask that question to our staff. Right. We know that we have a massive, uh, a big uh, percentage of our staff are, are vaccinated, but I can't ask anybody. I know personally and all my partner, we all vaccinated at some point. We work on the floor every day. I know that uh, my managers, uh, every manager I ask, they, I know because they asked to leave the restaurants to go get vaccinated when, when the time vaccination was coming. So we, we this is a part of that, it's a very sensitive. You can't just ask uh, people this information. It's a personal information, so of course. And uh, we want to be as uh, sensitive as possible with this. You mentioned the, the readers as well and the scanners. Uh, are things in place? So we talked to another uh, operations manager at another restaurant who was concerned that restaurant owners and operators won't even have access to the app yes. needed until Monday, yes. until the day it goes into yes. place. Uh, are, yes. you con- are you ready for Monday? Well, that's the reason we're going to try to see it with just like a, a photo IDs and and that you could just have it, like, as an example for me, I just download uh, my vaccination, like that green card, to my phone as a picture, mm-hmm. which have my name on it. So all what you have to do is just show that, 
and just have an ID with your name on it to match, and that's it. Right. And do you it's have do you have access yeah. though to the the scanner that Readers? you need? And, no, 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 not, not yet. yet. All not right. Yet. Yeah, I guess that's, and there will be some growing pains as well, because I'm guessing that's, <laughs> that's one of the issues that people, uh, like yourself, I did the same thing. I took a screen grab of yeah. the certificate and hope that when that scans that that works, but, yeah. but who yeah. knows what's going to happen come Monday. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. That's why I'm, I'm telling to all our teams, let's just be as sensitive as possible with people, right? Because everybody, uh, we're all in, in this together and we're all trying to learn together about how the system is going to work. It's like a new law. Like think of it as every brand new law that they put out. I mean, we just have to follow the law. They put up a new law for us. We follow the law. Yeah, for sure. Do you, do you anticipate, though, what will you do then with customers, say, that smoke or that have to leave and come back? Will they have to queue up again and rescan? Or, or have you been... No, or, I mean, it's, we're aware of the people, which table they're sitting on. So right. the minute they sat in the restaurant, we understand that. We're not, we're not going to make it... Uh, we're not in the business to make people feel difficult coming to our place. We're in the business to make people feel comfortable. So we're going to, of course, we're going to watch our tables. We're going to watch where these people are. When people leave, we know that they're standing on the corner smoking. And smoking is becoming a very, very low percentage in the restaurants. I, mean, I don't know mm-hmm. about clubs and bars, but in the restaurant business, you know, on a night where I have 500 people, you might have about maybe 10 people out there smoking. So, I mean, you will know who these 10 people were sitting and how, when did they walk out of the door. All right. Well, like you said, asking for patience and bringing on more people to kind of keep that and keep things moving. Imad, thanks so much for joining us and talking more about this again. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye. Well, yesterday, when the latest COVID numbers were released, we found out there are 262 people currently in hospital. Of those, 130 are in intensive care. We know there were five new deaths reported. And they also released the number of people vaccinated, saying that from September 1st to 7th, people not fully vaccinated accounted for 76 78.6% of COVID cases, and the week prior, they accounted for 86.3% of hospitalizations, or that's from August 25th to September 7th. Well, joining me now is Dr. Gerald DeRosa, who is the head of medicine at Royal Columbian Hospital. Dr. DeRosa, thanks so much for taking a few minutes of your day for us. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, when you look at those numbers or when we hear that numbers, uh, for, for a lot of us, they are numbers. We don't make the direct connection to people. You're working in the hospital, though, and see that. So how are things at the hospital right now? Uh, things, are, things are not great. I mean, we are seeing those numbers in, you know, as you say, in real life at the hospital. So, you know, as the numbers go up in the community over the past couple of weeks, our uh, patients being admitted to the intensive care unit and the hospital wards have increased. Um, as you've said, um, I would say it's it's very coincident with what we see is that probably 85% or more of the patients that are in the critical care unit and are very ill with COVID uh, have not been vaccinated. Um, so it is putting pressure on the system and we're kind of seeing the fourth wave uh, here um, after having a bit of a break in the early part of the summer. And when you say it puts pressure on the system, I know we've been looking at what's happening in the interior as well about cancelled procedures, overworked staff, places, Royal Inland Hospital, seeing seeing overcrowding and people waiting hours. We saw a woman 
pass away in the waiting room there. Are we are we seeing canceled procedures or anything similar to that at Royal Columbian? Uh, yeah, we, we are seeing some of those effects. Um, you know, at this stage, having had COVID go on for so long, we are seeing a lot of staff burnout. Um, and in that those scenarios, we uh, sometimes have to run some uh, sites or some areas of the hospital a little bit short-staffed, um, and that puts a lot of pressure on people. Um, because Royal Columbian Hospital and there's a couple other hospitals in Fraser Health that uh, take the majority of the COVID positive uh, critical care patients um, that can impact activity in those hospitals. And so at our hospital, we have had to um, reduce uh, some of the surgeries, um, not very many at this point, um, because we understand the impact of that on, uh, on people in the community. Um, but we have had to postpone some elective surgeries Um, to kind of create some capacity to care for these ill patients. And how are we doing as far as capacity in the ICU? Like you said, the Royal Columbian, one of the hospitals that that takes or has COVID patients, when we have, uh, and and again, the latest number that we got yesterday was 130 people in BC in intensive care. How are we dealing uh, or doing as far as capacity? I think we're managing right now, um, but I think we're we're starting to feel those limits um, as the numbers go up. Um, I do think if they were to go up further, um, we would uh, start to run to capacity issues. Now, because we've been dealing with COVID for so long, we certainly have contingency plans to deal with more and more volume, um, but that does require uh, sometimes making adjustments to other services. And so during parts of the pandemic last year, um, we certainly had to reduce more surgeries um, or other activities in the hospital. And so, you know, that's ideally what we'd like to avoid. Um, you know, the leaders at each of these hospitals are meeting, you know, multiple times a day to look at volumes, staffing, you know, and doing everything they can possibly do to keep on providing the high level of care that we try and do and look after these ill patients at the same time. When you look at patients that are in hospital with COVID-19, and we talked a bit about the number that are not vaccinated, are patients who are being admitted that are partially vaccinated or vaccinated and they've still got COVID-19, do you see a difference in the severity of the illness? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that uh, because they're not vaccinated, they are um, they're seeing the full extent of the disease. Um, I would say that those are vaccinated who contract COVID, you know, a lot of them aren't even coming to the hospital because they're having a much, you know, um, less, uh, you know, aggressive form of disease um, because they have antibodies. And so those antibodies can fight off the virus particles when they're exposed. Um, so um, I think the majority of people are, are not vaccinated. Those who aren't in the hospital, sometimes they're a more elderly population or they have some other, um, you know, comorbidities or, or what we call other health problems that, uh, that then, you know, make them get sicker in the context of another illness on top of everything else. Right, which would make sense if there there a comorbidity with somebody that that you would be somebody, I guess, that's still either partially or fully vaccinated, but still getting quite ill. Right, like if you had significant lung disease already, and then you got, you know, it's the same as if you got the flu and you had bad lung disease, you might get sick and have to go to the hospital. Uh, but even then, I, I would say, 
the proportion of the ones who need to go to critical care be intubated, you know, and on machines to support them, you know, those are by far the non-vaccinated population. And, and they're younger patients as well. I think that's what, you know, I really want to hammer home to people um, because um, we have no way of predicting um, some of them are between 20 and 40 years old. Some of them are pregnant and they're getting quite ill. And while people say, well, you know, it, you might not get that ill if you get COVID, that's potentially true. But because we can't predict who, you could be one of those who get very ill or, you know, heaven forbid that you that you die from COVID, which, you know, I, I've, we've seen a few people in their 30s who that has happened. Who are otherwise healthy. Yes. We only have about a minute left. I wanted to quickly ask you, there have been protests. There are people, I'm sure we will get calls from people hearing this who say, who still don't believe this. What do you say to them? Uh, you know, I, 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 it's, it, it's, I would ask them to really think about what they're saying and think about the impact that they have in these sort of actions. You know, I mean, far be it for me to prevents that there is freedom of speech but you know I just you know as someone who's working in the hospital you know as representing the healthcare workers who've been working so hard for the last year and a half and longer um, to kind of get a sense that that they don't believe it it's really disillusioning for for all of us who have been putting in all this time and then I think with the protests you know even beyond the fact that it's disillusioning and it and it's hard for us to see it's um, some of these protests have gone to a point where there's either, you know, verbal abuse or, you know, uh, blocking situations where patient care needs to be administered if they're done at a hospital setting. And, you know, that to me is, is really serious and concerning. Um, and it really discourage, discourages all the people who've been working so hard even more. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. DeRosa, for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, earlier in the program, we heard from Housing Minister David Eby. He held a news conference talking about a memorandum of understanding when it comes to the province, the city of Vancouver and Holborn properties about the Little Mountain lands, saying that there could be housing. There is a plan now for housing to be built there and for occupancy no later than December 31st in 2024. Well, David Chudnovsky is a former BC New Democrat MLA and he joins us once again to talk more about this. Thanks so much for coming back on the program. Hi, Jill. Uh, David Eby also said that there would not be a public inquiry, something that you've been calling for. What is your response to that? Well, um, I think that the key, the keys in uh, uh, Minister Eby's uh, statement had to do with finally holding Holborn um, even a little bit accountable for the this tragedy that's happened over the last uh, 14 or 15 years. It was Holborn that were the authors, together with the former uh, B.C. Liberal government, of this terrible, terrible contract. And there's a little bit in the uh, in this uh, agreement that was announced today that holds uh, Holborn accountable. It did come across, though, and David E.B. talked about this during the news conference, that Holborn made this good faith gesture to allow them to enter into this agreement and to move forward. Does it seem a little bit rich, though, that we're almost praising Holborn for doing this when those lands, it's Holborn that hasn't built anything and has have left the lands there empty? 
I guess that's what ministers say um, or uh, feel that they have to say, but there's nobody in Vancouver uh, that's watched this story unfold over so many years who thinks that that good faith is any kind of description of Holborn. They, uh, the, look at what the, uh, the Memorandum of Agreement says. First of all, it's not binding. Uh, it's very clear in, in, uh, in the agreement that it's not binding. Um, and it says that Holborn gets another three and a half years uh, to finish the social housing, the social housing that was uh, promised in a contract that was signed in 2008, and that people were told they were going to move back into their new social housing units in 2010. And this uh, memorandum of agreement gives these people, uh, Holborn, another three, close to three and a half years to, uh, to have, what's going to take them so long to finish um, these, uh, these units of social housing that people have been waiting for so long and, so, and, and that people deserve. And and you could tell by kind of the tone of David Eby's voice when he was talking about the former government that made this deal, saying it was a horrible deal for taxpayers. It was a great deal for Holborn, but a horrible deal. And there was no there was really no other course, he said, that could be taken without huge financial penalty. But given that and given again that that he's he referred to this as a good faith gesture, how confident are you that even in the three and a half years, there will be social housing built on that site? I'm not confident. Are you? Is anybody who's listening to uh, your program confident that this organi- this uh, company that uh, signed a contract in 2008 uh, to build, to simply replace the social housing that was knocked down in 2009, is anybody confident that this, um, that this company is gonna, uh, going to finish these social housing uh, units in another three and a half years? The, the memorandum of agreement uh, says they have to make their best efforts. Well, what were they making up till now? Uh, so they certainly were make, weren't making their best efforts between 2008 and 2021, and I am not confident that uh, that they're going to m- make any different efforts between now and three and a half years more before we see the end of the of the simply the replacement social housing. I do agree with the minister certainly that that the authors of this tragedy, as I said before are the former government, former minister Rich Coleman, who traveled around the province and told everybody what a great deal this was, and Holborn, who, um, who signed this sweetheart deal. You know, this memorandum of agreement says clearly that it doesn't amend anything in the original uh, outrageous deal, the $300 million in loans, the 18 years of no, of no interest. Uh, none of that has changed. So, yes, there is a public acknowledgement, it seems to me, a little public acknowledgement in, in this agreement that Holborn uh, should be held accountable, uh, but it's a pretty weak agreement. Uh, and like you said, it's not as though there's a penalty or there's any requirement. It's, it's that it's hoped that these non-market housing units will be prioritized and that they will be built by the end of 2024. Uh, when you mentioned, though, and, and question what Holborn's been doing, when I saw one of the quotes in, this was from the news release that was put out from the province, and this was quoting uh, a principal at Holborn Properties saying, we look forward to maintaining the positive momentum 
momentum at Little Mountain as it is progressively redeveloped into a thriving, inclusive and sustainable community. I thought of you because I can't imagine that you would you would use the phrase positive momentum to describe what's been happening there. Well, it's not just me, Jill. It's um, is there anybody anywhere in Vancouver except for this PR guy at Holborn who would describe what's happened over the last 14 years as positive momentum? It's if it weren't so tragic, it would be a joke. But it's a tragedy. A community was destroyed. People were pushed out of their houses. They were supposed to come back in 2010. And now we have a sort of kind of vague promise that the development company will finish all of that by 2024. What is that? 2008 to 2024, uh, 16 years later. Uh, Positive momentum? No, not on your life. And I know, again, that uh, David Eby mentioned it as well. He said that if he called a public inquiry into every mistake that the previous government, the Liberal government that made this deal, uh, if he did that to every one of those mistakes, he would have no time to get anything else done. But, but do you think it's a lost opportunity that there won't be an inquiry into this? I think that there are uh, various ways in which uh, an inquiry could be done. Uh, public inquiry, I think, would be a good idea. I still think it's a good idea. But um, what about the ombuds? Uh, what about the ombudsman? What about um, the other tools that government has to have a look at this at the, this um, deal? Um, I think that there's much to be learned about the mistakes that were made by the previous government. And uh, Minister Eby's right. I think it's a good line, uh, more than a good line. If, he, if, he, uh, if a public inquiry were called to look at all of the fiascos of the previous government, uh, nothing much else would get done. But having said that, uh, I think that there's, uh, there's value what about the Auditor General? Perhaps the Auditor General could look into, the, uh, into this case. There are many ways that, um, that uh, many tools and structures that government has for figuring out um, how things went wrong. And can you think of a, of a case where things went more wrong than at Little Mountain? Uh, probably not when we're talking about housing and as you described what was what happened on that site and the fact that it's been empty all of these years. Uh, we'll leave it there for today, though. I'm sure we will talk about this again. Once again, uh, David Chudnovsky, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks, Jill.